Good morning and welcome to the orchard. We are so glad you are with us. Whether you're here in the house, online, watching live, or listening around wherever you would be, we have been in the series of Genesis, a Genesis series walking through the book for quite a while now. And the last three or four weeks, we've been in the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Joseph being one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. And um, I read his story. It's such an important time of my life that God spoke to me. But I, I want to be honest about something this morning. Uh, I, I, I worked during the week, went in on Saturday, and I wrote an entire sermon from Genesis 42. And, and I, it was good, and, it was, and I just thought, I just felt like that wasn't it. So I, then I wrote another one from Genesis 42, and that wasn't it. And so then I, by that time, I had so many pages of content. I was like, God, I don't know what to do. So I just sat there and, and asked him, and, and he led me in this direction, in this text. And so I want to say this. I'm going to where I feel led today. And I, I don't know who this is for, but there are some of you today who wanted me to speak this specifically for you. Some of you are about to get a word from God, and you're going to take it, and you're going to run with it. And some of you are going to get this word from God today, and you're going to need to take it and really wrestle with it. But my prayer always, and you've heard me say this time and time again, is, you know, I cannot preach good enough to, for there to be any life change in here. And that is only God's, that is God's terrain, your heart, your soul. And so my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would speak, and you would hear with ears to hear, and that God would do what only God can do. Amen? All right. So we're in uh, Genesis 42, and last week we saw Joseph. If you haven't been with us, um, you can listen earlier previously, but we saw Joseph elevated to the second most powerful person in the entire planet, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph was given full control of Egypt to navigate Egypt through seven years of plenty, and then what would happen is seven years of famine as God gave Joseph a prophetic insight on what was coming. Joseph was 30 last week when he was raised up into authority and began to store the grain for seven good years. And during that time, Joseph did very well. And the storehouses of Egypt were packed full. But as we turn to Genesis 42, the seven years of plenty are now a distant memory. We're likely two to three years into the famine, which means that Joseph is probably around the age of 40. And that's where we find him in Genesis 42, the famine being in full effect, so much in effect, it is affecting his family, Jacob, his father Jacob, his brothers in a far off land of Canaan. So verse one, when Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt, go down there and buy enough to keep us alive, otherwise we will die. Jacob's family, along with everyone else in this region, they have gone through all their stores. They've gone through all their reserves. And Jacob, it says, he hears probably through a caravan, there's, there's grain in Egypt. He looks at his boys, you knuckleheads, why are you standing around looking at each other? Like, what are you doing looking at each other? There's grain over there. Go get some. We need it. We're going to die. We move on to verse 3. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear that some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food for the famine was in Canaan as well. I mean, Jacob, we find him still playing favorites with his sons. Now remember back when Joseph was younger, Jacob would send Joseph off on journeys by himself to go check on his brothers. He let Joseph go around. He had his coat of many colors, but, but what happened to Joseph? He died doing that. And so with Benjamin, we see he goes the, the other way, and he's the, he's the new favorite. He can't go anywhere. He's going on no journeys with his brothers. 
Benjamin is the only full-blooded brother of Joseph, and they are both the sons of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. The other 10 brothers, those are from different three wives, but, but, but Joseph and Benjamin are, are special to Jacob. Now, the other 10 brothers, they're not trusted with Benjamin's life. And there are clues here and clues in the text later that Jacob doesn't quite trust them. He had already sent one favored son to go check on them, and that son didn't come back, but the brothers did with a bit of silver in their pocket, which is interesting to see when we'll turn later in the chapter when the brothers return again with some silver. So Jacob isn't about to let his favorite son go off with these brothers. The 10 brothers, they load up a caravan, and they make the 10-day journey down to Egypt where they have to buy grain to save the family. If they don't complete this mission, the family dies. What they don't know is that their little brother who they human trafficked and sold into slavery is the very one who can be the one who saves them. The very one who has the grain for everybody. And so we step in and I want you to use something here as we move forward in this text and through this, this story. God gave you the gift of imagination. And imagination is what allows you to, to, as you just read the story, to put yourself in the story. What was Joseph feeling? What would the brothers be feeling? You know, we can read through this like a textbook and just kind of miss the drama of it and what actually happened here. But let's, I want you to, I want you to in, um, initiate your imagination today. Verse 6. Since Joseph was governor over all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph is unrecognizable to him. I mean, have you ever seen somebody completely out of context that you know, that you don't recognize? It happens all the time, right? But, but they see, they see this their brother, but, but he is completely shaven in, like an Egyptian would be. He has a fake goatee attached to his chin. He's dressed in royalty. He has a position of absolute power, perhaps even sitting on a throne. These brothers, they, they enter, and what do they see? They see an Egyptian ruler with power, with grain, and they need favor in this ruler's eyes. So what do they do? They bow deeply before him. Verse seven, Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. And this is where I want you to begin to wonder what it would feel like. The drama of this moment for Joseph. Joseph is in charge of the grain for the whole nation and he, he likely deals with tribes and families and things like this day after day. A never-ending line of people who are in need. If there's famine in Egypt where the Nile nourishes the area, the famine outside there would have been intense. Joseph must meet with these people and sell and barter and grain from the storehouses. He's been doing this for years likely. And in the line, it never ends because the, the need never ends. These tribes, these families, they need grain to survive. And they come, and Joseph's who they come to. He completes one deal with, with a certain tribe and, and the security ushers them out of the room. And then an, another group begins to work their way in and forward. And it's 10 grown men with beards, dirty from travel. They file into where Joseph sits. Joseph's heart much, must have lurched within him. His heart must have begun racing as he recognized Reuben, Simeon, Judah, his brothers, they don't recognize him. The stunning realization washes over him. On one hand, he is seeing long lost family who he hasn't seen in, in decades. On the other hand, he's seeing his abusers who sold him into slavery coming before him for some silver. 
I mean, the last time he saw them, remember, he had watched as they exchanged his life for some money. And what had he done? He had pleaded. He had begged, but they had not listened. And now, here those same brothers were, bowed down before him. Now, Joseph, who, who sits on this throne, he has been through so much suffering since the last time they saw him. He's known dark seasons. He's known painful years. He has known excruciating heartbreak. These 10 brothers, they had been the cause of that. They had been the, the reason he had lost his childhood. Joseph had had decades, years to think over the betrayal that they caused, to think through that day where they, they cast him in the pit and then sold him and, and all that they'd done and he'd, he'd not seen his mother or father since. I mean, bitterness should have consumed Joseph's heart. Joseph has every right in this moment to have swift and rageful revenge. And, and let me just remind you, he has all the power to do it. Joseph, with his position and his power, he could do anything. He could, with one word, call for their execution, and it would happen, and no one in the kingdom would bat an eye. No one would say anything. His power was so absolute. And we will see going through the coming chapters and weeks that as we encounter Joseph, there's been some deep work in him, in his heart, in these areas. In fact, he's not murderous. He's not rageful, as we would expect, and honestly, as we would even allow him to be. Like, I would expect him to be revengeful. You'll see from the clues in the future that his heart is actually free from much of the bitterness that we would assume would be there. You see, God was with Joseph in the pit, and God was with Joseph in the prison, and through those times, he changed Joseph's heart to such an extent that, that Joseph was different when he was elevated to a place of power in the palace. What Joseph is going to do from this point on is he's going to put his brothers through a series of tests it will look like punishment, but, but we know the absolute power he has. He could end it all at any moment. He's going to put them through some tests to see and discern what they're like. Have they changed over the years? I mean, he, know, he remembers what these brothers used to do. He used to report on them to his father. He knows what they did to him. Have they changed? Have they learned? And more importantly, I'm sure Joseph is wondering, do they regret anything? Like, do they regret what they did to me? So we enter the part of the story called the testing of the brothers. It says, Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Now, one thing to know, and we learn this in the text, is that Joseph isn't speaking to them directly. He's using an interpreter. He's, they don't know that he knows their language. He's speaking Egyptian to them. So the brothers, they see and they hear this, this foreign ruler speak harshly with a harsh face and interpreted to them in such a way. Verse 8. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered, he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. You only remember something if you've forgotten it. Joseph was 17, and Genesis 37 tells us that he had a dream. And he told his brothers the dream. It says, he said, We were out in a field, brothers. We were tying up bundles of grain. And suddenly my bundle of grain stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before me. And back then in Genesis 37, it says they hated him all the more. But it says that Joseph remembered his dreams. You see, when life chews you up and spits you out enough times, 
The dreams that you had in your past, forgotten. At some point when living the nightmare that Joseph was living, he let go of those dreams. Through dark seasons, Joseph had forgotten them. And you, you and I know this. We, we have these areas in our life. Areas where when you have enough consistent disappointment and loss that you lose hope that things will change. I want to be different here, but there's always disappointment. I want things to change here, but there's so much repeated disappointment. I don't even know if I can hope anymore. I talk to people all the time who say, hope is, so, hope is terrifying. To open myself back up, to hope God can move, am I just opening myself up to being disappointed again? We've had these places where we have let go of hope and let go of our dreams, but here we see there came a point in time for Joseph to remember his dreams. Orchard, when did you give up on your dreams? When did you lose hope in those places? When did your faith begin to lose the fire and shrink down to a manageable level? When did life maybe wound you so deeply that those dreams you had at one point, they died? When did the path get so dark that you let go of that purpose that you once believe God had called you to. You know, when, did, when did circumstances break so bad that that faith that was once so, so there and on fire is now comfortable and manageable and small? When did you have such despair and disappointment that, that at some point you let go of the calling that you thought God had on you? I've spoken very honestly in the past about my story and what happened to me in the previous decades in Atlanta, about my previous time um, when I felt like I was on top of the ministry life where I was working in a mega church, I was married, having all my dreams come true in those areas, seeing dreams actualized before it all came crashing down. If you've been with us through the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that. My dreams of success and marriage crushed I talk about how I went to the pit like Joseph and many of you have been in those places. I worked for Potiphar in a job that I didn't want without a purpose that didn't have any grand meaning to it. Many of you have said that you understand that. I eventually moved back to Colorado. I thought that would be a good idea. I moved back to Colorado in my early 30s and uh, I live with my parents. That's okay to say, right? It's more and more common, and for a season, it was, it was right for me. But I remember moving back here and just feeling like everything that I had wanted out of life had left me. There was so much distance between me and, and Georgia where all my, imp all, all my success had been. And here, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My dreams of, of a purpose, my dreams of companionship, far from me. So I moved back here, moved back home, and I just tried to make a life for myself. Just eke out a life. I got a job. I began to make some friends. I began to, to, to try to, you know, find some fun along the way and some peace. But, but through it all, in the periphery of my life, I had this sneaking, creeping sensation that I was just playing it safe at every single level. Insulating myself from any risk, living in a comfort zone. I had been deeply wounded in betrayal and marriage, and I was playing it safe. I wasn't going to open my heart to anyone. 
As far as I was concerned, it was better to live without love than to ever be hurt like that again. I will not. I've been deeply wounded by the church and by ministry. So I was going to play it safe. And although I believe God had equipped me and called me to do certain things with a certain purpose, it was better to work anywhere else and play it safe than to ever be burned like that again. I had been broken and thought it safer to live a life in a comfort zone, just trying to find some fun and some joy here and there than risk anything. I had set out in great faith on, on fire and, and been dashed. And so, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to let my faith flare that big again because that, how did that go for me? Admittedly, I was choosing a, a safe life without risk, without any ambition spiritually. All those days that I had had that great faith and that great purpose and that great ambition, those were all done. That ship had not just sailed. I watched it sink. I was living in a whole new type of prison. It was an unexpected prison as I think back through this. One that I think that perhaps God wants me to speak on this today because some of you find yourself in this prison today. I was living in a prison of safety, of a comfort zone. My dysfunctions and my disappointments were deciding my destiny. My past pains were scripting my present story. My earlier wounds were writing my next chapters. And for some of you, it could be in that place, but it could also be that you are just in a place of indifference to faith. And a faith that you once had is so small is so manageable, it doesn't impact your life at all. I mean, when we get to those places, why? I remember asking, why risk again? Why dare greatly? I dared greatly once before. I tried it your way, God. I, I, put, I went all in on what you were asking me and what, what happened? What was I left with? You know, God allowed me, when I moved back in those times, as he will allow you, to live in the safety of a comfort zone. He won't force you out. But I remember him whispering through that time that there was more. There's more to this life and there's more to your spiritual life than comfort and safety. That we were meant to risk more for him. That I was meant to love and be loved in return. But this safe and controlled life was a prison that kept me from ever being hurt again. I don't want to step out in faith again if I'm going to get burned like that again. Sometimes God brings the right book along at the right time. And during that season, I began to read Joseph's life deeply in it, finding truth and, and finding myself, and maybe in some ways that you guys have in the pit and prison and Potiphar. And, and also during that season, I read a book by Donald Miller called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And those two things together. Don, Donald Miller asked the question in this book. He says, if your life was a movie, would anyone want to watch it? I thought, I was like, well, come on, you know? I think of the movies you love, the underdog character. They go through deep disappointment. Something's keeping them from something great. They maybe lose some companions. Someone betrays them. But overcoming all odds, they trudge, they work, they, they persevere, and, they, and they, they get the girl, or they complete the mission. They accomplish the purpose given them. Oh, we love those movies. But man, that's hard to live in real life. <laughs> I 
I looked at my life and saw that I went through deep disappointment. I lost companion. My, my mission was thwarted. There was huge losses. And what did I do? I moved home. That's right. I refused to open my heart ever again. I got a safe job and I shrunk my faith down to a safe size, never hoping again. I mean, imagine watching that movie. That sounds awesome. I, I, imagine where the, a movie where the character plays it safe the entire rest of the movie. Like Frodo Baggins never leaves the Shire. Just three hours of him having third lunches and second breakfasts. Who wants to watch that? Or, or, okay, you don't know that movie, ladies? How about this? Imagine a Hallmark movie where she never talks to that bearded small town guy with the flannel. I mean, we would never, we would never sit through that kind of movie. But we'll live that movie. We will live that movie. We won't be okay with it on the screen, but we'll be okay with it in our hearts. Are you living a life of safety in a comfort zone where you don't have to risk anything? Are you playing it safe because you've been hurt in the past? Or is your, faith, is your faith so small that it never requires you to step out? Are you holding back from investing your gifts in who you are because you've been burned? Are you done dreaming any kind of God-sized ambitious purpose because shattered dreams hurt more than dreaming new dreams? Shattered dreams hurt more than not dreaming at all. And so we insulate ourselves. I, I, in reading the life of Joseph, for me, along with Miller's book, my heart began to, to kind of lift from this fog. I began to see that, that God had given, given me one life to live. One life. And that there was purpose. There was purpose beyond the pit. There's purpose beyond the prison. There's purpose beyond Potiphar. There's purpose in those places too but it would require something of me. It was going to require something of me that I had stopped living by. You see, I had stopped living by faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I still had faith in Jesus, that he was the son of God, but that was about it. I'm talking about the fact that if you live a life without risk, you don't need active and robust faith. If you have no spiritual risk in your life, what need of you for faith? For some of us in churches, the only faith we have is that Jesus died for us and someday when we die, we'll go to heaven. But what about the operating faith that says when I step out, faith will engage at that moment? Does your current comfort zone where you are right now require active faith from God? Are you taking any spiritual risks in your life that require faith? Are you stepping out in leadership anywhere or serving anywhere that needs faith? Are you speaking about God in anywhere in your life where you, you go to speak to them and you get that nauseating feeling, oh no, oh no, and you step out and speak out in faith? Is there any place in your life that requires actual, active, and robust faith? Because I had to be honest with myself that faith in Jesus was all I had left. And my lifestyle required no faith because there was no risk. 
and began to see God calling me back into a life of risking and relying on him. I began to see that my life, my life would be a better story if I, if I would dare to risk for God again. Even if I, what, what if I get crushed all over? I remember wrestling with this. If I step out again, what, what's gonna keep me from getting crushed? Can you assure me? No. But I began to see that I would rather step out and risk it all and be crushed again than to spend the rest of my life risking nothing spiritually. I'm beginning to get a glimpse that it would be better to open my heart and, re- and risk being wounded all over again by another person than to spend the rest of my life safely insulated where no one could ever hurt me. Glimmers of hope that it would be better to start to dream a big purpose again, that God had something for me again. And, and even if I step into this purpose and fail like a firework, it's better than having a life where I bury my gifts and faith in the ground and safely walk away. And for some of you here today, you need to hear God whisper that it's better to step out of a perfectly good boat and risk getting wet in faith, trying to move forward toward Jesus than to cling safely to the masts of our comfortable Christianity. It's time to stop worrying about what the cost would be in your life if you step out in faith and begin to wonder what the cost is in your life if you never step out into audacious faith and risk. There's a prison of comfort zone Christianity. There's a prison of, of indifference in our faith. There's a prison that comes when we refuse to step outside the safety of our churchianity that we've condensed our spiritual life to. There's a prison of comfort zone that requires no faith, but it costs our whole life. And God, God has goodness and blessing on the other side of these difficult and courageous questions. And that's all I'm asking you to do today. To ask these questions. Am I risking anywhere? Or have I constructed a faith life that is comfortable and safe? Orchard, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't remembered my dreams, so to speak, like Joseph did. And decided that it was time to step out in faith again. I wouldn't know what true love is and what it means to be married to a woman of character like my Amy if I had not been willing to just be crushed again. I certainly wouldn't be standing up here speaking to anyone if I wanted to play it safe. Every good thing I have in my life, I owe to God who called me out of the prison of my safe comfort zone to walk in faith and risk being hurt again, being crushed again into a life and a purpose that was greater than I could ever imagine. And you don't think Joseph experienced that? That is his story. I had a prison that my past and pain tried to keep me in. And perhaps today you have a prison that your past and pain want to hold you in. Some of you here today, you have been wounded deeply deeper than anyone knows in places that people don't even know about. You've been burned, you've been betrayed, perhaps cast aside, dreams broken, purpose thwarted. And you have probably done as many as I did and as Joseph did at times, carving out the best life you can with what you have left, with what you've been given. And and some some of them are really good lives. It's worked out really well. 
But, but for many of us, we have to admit we have settled for safe. We have settled for safe in a life that requires no spiritual risk. And a life with no risk requires no faith. We need to remember what Joseph showed us, that God is with us. And just because you've, been, you've given up on your dreams doesn't mean God's given up dreaming for you. Just because you think your purpose is over or there might not be a grand purpose left for you doesn't mean that God doesn't have it for you and that your greatest years of, of impact and purpose and meaning are ahead of you, no matter your age, no matter your situation, no matter what's been done to you. God sees your disappointments and hurts and fears. He sees where you're afraid to step. He also sees our indifference and where we're like, eh, this is, this, is, this is faith now. I get to go to heaven someday. And he calls you out of that into a life that has risk and, and, and has danger and has, requires faith. My friends, it is time to stop being defined by your nightmares and start dreaming with God again. It's time to stop being defined by your past and know that God has present and future purpose for you. Yeah, you may have been wounded by a church. You might have been wounded by religious people. But God put some gifts and equipped something in you and it's time to stop playing it safe. Yes, you may have been wounded by people. But you know that God made you to love and to be loved and it's time to stop playing it safe. Yes, your life might have gone sideways, and at one point you feel that God's purpose is, you, you, you just messed it too up. It's, it's too messed up. I, I, got, I just, I blew the whole thing up. But God has purpose for you, no matter what prison, pit, or pot for you've been through or find yourself in. It's time to stop playing it safe. The question is, do you have the courage to hope again in those areas where you've been hurt? Do you have the faith to dream again in those places where they've been broken? Do you have any gumption or holy desire to get over the indifference and walk on the fiery path of faith that only the few are allowed to that see God do amazing things in you and through you? Are you sick of indifference? On the other side of trusting God with your heart and your future is a completely different life. And by God's grace, I found it. By God's goodness, Joseph found it. And his grace and his goodness are for you this morning. God has some promises for, for those people who are going to begin to step out of prisons and pits and potiphers and perfectly good, safe Christian boats. Philippians 1.6, the God who began the good work within you, what's he going to do? Will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day Jesus returns. God's not through with you no matter what you've been through. God's not through with you no matter what you've been through. God's not through with you no matter what you're currently in. He began, he began a great work in you. He's going to continue. Think of Joseph in the pit and the prison as God continued to work. And Joseph probably doubted that this was going to turn into anything. That's a promise of God. He is not done working in you. He is not done. Ephesians 3.16, let this roll over you. I pray, and I prayed this over you today. I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources. He empower you with inner strength through his spirit to step out in courageous faith. His unlimited power gives you the strength to step out in faith. 
then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. As you exercise that faith, your roots will go grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Wherever you are, whatever you win, you're in, your faith holds you strong as you grow. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is for you. For you. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to even understand. Then you'll be made complete with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. You'll be ready to live out a new divine purpose. And finally, in verse 20, now, all glory to God for all of our stories. All glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or even consider or think. Do you think Joseph in the pit goes, man, I could just think about being in the palace in charge of the whole nation. No, God's work in us is infinitely more than you can ever imagine. What do we learn from these verses? Number one, you are loved more than you know. Number two, you're called to a greater purpose than you could ever imagine. Number three, you are empowered at a greater level than you could ever conceive. And number four, because of all that, you are able to accomplish infinitely more than you could ever imagine. God wants to work in you and through you. But for many of us, it is time to step out. No matter how hurt, no matter how indifferent, it's time to take a deep breath of the Holy Spirit and, and in his boldness, leave the safety behind. And here's why. Because you were created for more. And I'll tell you one thing. What the world doesn't need is more comfortable Christians who are preaching perfection. What the world doesn't need any more of is churchianity Christians out there preaching perfection. You know what it needs? It needs battle-hardened, tested, hurt, vulnerable, authentic believers who've been in the pit, who've been in the prison, who've worked for Potiphar and are willing to talk about it and say, here's the peace, here's the purpose, here's the power, here's the joy I have. What the world needs is real people who've been through real life who are open to being vulnerable and saying, this is where I've been and this is what God has done. Because here's the point. They don't need perfect churchianity Christians to point to that Jesus. They need to point to the Jesus who's been with them in the pit. You've been there. You've been through that. Speak about that. Open up. It's time to stop playing it safe in our isolated comfort zones. You were meant for more in this life. And our region, our world needs people who are speaking about what God has done and what he's doing. Whether you are in a pit or a prison or whether you are in a palace, wherever you are today in your spiritual walk, the challenge is this. Are you sick of the indifference? Do you, do you see that you're playing it safe? Because God is calling you out. Let me pray for you. Father God, you, you are the victory. Even in our defeats, you work all things to the good for those who love you. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that today you would help us to wrestle with this and say, am I playing it safe? Is there anywhere I'm actually risking spiritually? And God, by your Spirit's gentle conviction, would you call us forth to be courageous, authentic followers of Jesus?